0: Before I became a pastor, I worked as a paralegal at a law firm. And the first case that I ever worked on was a murder trial. I was able to go with the attorneys to the courtroom. And at the trial, I entered that courtroom and I saw the different participants involved in a case. There was the accused or the defendant, there were the lawyers. There was the jury were listening, and up on the bench was the judge. In C.S. Lewis's famous essay, and even book title, God in the Dock, Lewis describes a role reversal in man's relationship with God. Dock is an old English word for the place in a courtroom where the accused or the defendant sits. Lewis says, God is the supreme judge, but mankind has attempted to switch places with God, putting him on trial instead. As Lewis puts it, man is on the bench as judge, and God is in the dock as the accused. In other words, humanity has dared to put its creator on trial. In our passage this morning, something similar is taking place. A Pharisee assumes the place of judge evaluating Jesus. And as we'll see, he assumes the role of accuser, judge, and jury in one fell swoop. But as Luke will show us, it is Jesus alone who is the true judge of all the earth. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 11, verses 37 to 44. Luke 11, 37 to 44. We continue a series in the Gospel of Luke, and we're now in the second part of Luke's Gospel, For those who don't know, Luke was a doctor in the first century, and Luke wrote this account of Jesus' birth, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection so that the reader, he says, would have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Jesus has been demonstrating that he's the Messiah of Israel. Jesus has now set his face towards Jerusalem, the place that he'd suffer and die for sinners. And here in Luke 11, Jesus has been speaking to the Jewish crowds. The crowds have said that they're undecided about him, and they've demanded from him more convincing signs or proof that he is the Messiah. Jesus, who's already been doing many miracles, refuses to give in to their games and warns them about their spiritual blindness. He says in the passage right before ours, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. The the passage, this passage that we're about to look at, demonstrates this spiritual blindness. The religious leaders were blind, they were confused in their understanding. And as we'll see, they were living a lifestyle of sin. Jesus shines a bright light on their darkness. And rather than turning from their sin and coming to the light, their anger towards him only grows. Our main point from the text this morning is this. Self-righteousness leads to eternal death. Self-righteousness leads to eternal death. And I pray this morning that we would see that the same judge of the self-righteous is also the Savior who justifies sinners, those who turn to him in repentance and faith. And I hope that we as a church, those cleansed through Christ, would be able to build a culture of faithfulness, honesty, vulnerability, mercy, and love. Let's begin by reading the passage. Follow along with me as I read Luke 11, 37-44. to 44. This is God's word. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done, without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Jesus has a complicated relationship with the religious leaders of his time. I think that's an understatement. These men don't trust Jesus. They're suspicious of him. They feel threatened by him. He is a danger to their position and power among the people. There were different religious groups and religious leaders vying for control in Jesus' time there in first century Palestine. The man who invites Jesus to dinner in this passage is a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the most respected and conservative religious group among the Jews. They were the strict rule keepers. They were one of the most prominent of these groups. Some of the other groups included the Sadducees, which you'll read about as you read the four Gospels. They were a wealthy class of priests who controlled the temple and controlled the the formal worship of Israel. The Sadducees, along with the Pharisees, wanted Jewish political independence. It was the Sadducees who were in charge of uh, all of the the money changing that was happening at the temple. And Jesus makes the Sadducees angry too when he disrupts their uh, business. There's also the Herodians. They were a pragmatic group who supported the Roman client king, Herod. And then there were the scribes that we'll read about. They are the copyists of God's word. Those that were experts in the scripture, it was their full-time job to study God's word and to copy it into scrolls for God's people. We'll also see in this passage that there were lawyers. That's actually the section right after this, but part of the same scene. Lawyers were experts in the law. They were the ones giving advice about how to obey it and actually making decisions about how to apply it. The Jews of Jesus' day looked to the Pharisees to teach them about God, his word, and his laws. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene doing miracles and teaching with authority, it's the Pharisees who show up to evaluate him. Sometimes they would do this, invite Jesus to meals, to evaluate him up close. You know the saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. The invitation in verse 37 is probably that. Back in chapter 7, there was a similar invitation from a Pharisee named Simon. He hosted Jesus for a meal, and then based on what he saw, he concluded that Jesus couldn't be a prophet because Jesus allowed a sinful woman to anoint him. And he thought, this man were a prophet he would know who this woman is and what she has done and he wouldn't allow her to make him unclean in this way. Here Jesus comes to dinner and in the minds of the Pharisees and his friends Jesus is the one being evaluated. The dining room has become a courtroom of sorts. Often Their intent is to discredit the Son of God. And we know this in verse 54 because it says after this passage that they were lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. And I love how Jesus, at the very beginning of dinner, he commits a party foul right out of the gate. He doesn't wash before dinner. And in this court of public opinion we see all of the familiar characters from a courtroom. First, we see a false judge. First, we see a false judge or false judges represented here by this Pharisee. Verses 37 and 38. We'll read those two verses again. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Point number one. The false judges. In his mind, the Pharisee has put Jesus in the dock. The man believes that he has the right to evaluate Jesus. And before the meal even begins, he's astonished by Jesus, the text says. This Greek word for astonished or amazed has been used throughout the book so far to describe people's reactions to Jesus' miracles. They're astonished by his great power and authority. But here, this Pharisee is astonished, not by miracles. But by Jesus' alleged rule breaking. In his heart, the man has judged Jesus. What kind of prophet he thinks would break such important religious rules? Can you relate to a scene like this? We can be like this too, perhaps questioning someone else in your heart because they don't do the things the way that you would do them, or they don't agree with you about some secondary issue. Now, let's be clear. Jesus hasn't broken any of the Old Testament laws. He is the perfect, sinless Son of God. He's never broken any of God's law. In fact, he's the fulfillment of God's law. What Jesus is guilty of here is ignoring the Pharisees' man-made rules. Pharisees not only interpreted and taught Old Testament law for God's people, they also added many rules of their own. Jesus, in other places... Would accuse them of actually softening some of God's rules, some of His laws, which they found to be too hard. Sometimes they were lowering the bar of obedience. Uh, for instance, their rule of Corbin, allowing people to not have to honor their parents by caring for them financially in their old age. But in other cases, like these cleansing rules, they were adding on to God's law, rules to demonstrate an additional concern for holiness, external holiness. Rules like these ceremonial washings before meals. In reality, they valued the appearance of being clean on the outside without a genuine concern for being clean on the inside. The Old Testament ceremonial law code instructed God's people about their sin and His holiness. The laws of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy gave clear instructions about cleanliness, specifically how God's people were defiled or made ceremonially unclean before Him. These laws also detailed how it is that God's people could be made ceremonially clean after such defilement. The law taught that sinners... have disobeyed a holy God were not able to approach God until they'd been made clean. That's the point behind these laws. It's a continued reminder of the need to be made clean and a pointer to the fact that we are not holy like God, but that we would need salvation through a Redeemer who would come. And yet here is... The unapproachable holy God sitting in their dining room, and they're concerned about whether he's keeping their rules, their customs, as if they are holier than God. Now, the Pharisees at one level had some good motivation for their rule keeping. In part, their rule keeping came from a desire for the nation to be holy believing that with holiness they could earn God's favor and blessing. And while they may have had some good motivation, they were also seriously misguided. And one of the most important ways they were misguided was in how they read their Bibles. They read their Bibles as merely a list of rules to keep, rather than seeing it for what it is, a record of God's kind redemption of His people, all of which points forward to the fulfillment of that redemption in the person, in their midst, Jesus Christ. And they don't have eyes to see him. And while Jesus accepted the hospitality of the Pharisee, he does not obey their man-made rules. And in standing apart, Jesus knowingly subjects himself to public ridicule. These leaders are itching to judge Jesus, but as we will see, they're merely false judges. With no real authority. That's point number one, false judges. Point number two, the true judge. Point number two, the true judge. Look at verse 39, just the beginning there. And the Lord said to him, and the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees. Notice how Luke phrases the beginning of verse 39. The Lord Jesus is the Lord. Luke wants his readers to know for sure who he's talking about here. He wants his readers to know for sure who Jesus is, even though these false judges don't. There's great irony here. These religious leaders are placing themselves on the bench, and they've put Jesus in the dock, when in fact, Jesus the Lord is their judge. Here, Jesus turns the tables. Court is now in session, and it's the religious leaders who are now on trial. You see here who Jesus is. He is the Lord, God himself in human flesh, the judge of all the earth who has come. I wonder if you, like these Pharisees, like me at times, find yourself putting God, putting Jesus on trial, on the dock. It may not look like this scene, but there are ways that we are tempted to misjudge his wisdom, his goodness, God's sufficiency, His power, or His grace. I know that I can regularly question God's goodness, His wisdom, and His sovereignty as I experience difficulties in life, and trials. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you not to turn the tables or seek to turn the tables on God, but to relate to Him as the God that He is. Realize that we are are not to put Him on trial, but to realize that we, if we are His children, are to draw near to Him, find strength through Him, to follow in His wisdom. Friends, do you realize that you need pardoning? Do you realize that your judge has come near? This is the wonderful thing about this passage. Jesus is the Lord, and though He is the judge, and while He will declare judgments on these self-righteous people... Do you realize that he has come near, not to destroy, but to save? In John 3, 17, Jesus says this to Nicodemus, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. As I read this passage, I was shocked at how awkward this scene was seems incredibly awkward. Jesus, the guest, making a scene in his host's house. But yes, at least he went, though. Do you realize that he is actually accepting this invitation in order to draw near even to these self-righteous people who are seeking to be his judge? He accepted the invitation, knowing who they were and what was in their hearts, knowing that leaders like this, maybe these exact ones, were going to bring about his death. And when they invited him to dinner, he went. He didn't blend in or sneak out. No, he lovingly spoke words of truth, words of conviction, words of salvation for those who had ears to hear. Friends, take heart. The very good news of the Scriptures is that the Judge, the Lord, has come to justify hypocrites if we will repent and believe. Christmas time is a time where we remember Jesus coming, Emmanuel, God with us. God indeed has come near, not to condemn, but to save. If you are here and you're not a Christian, if you are here and you are aware of the weight of your own sin, of the position that you're in, of being in the dock with God as your judge, there is hope for you here in the person of Jesus Christ. Your judge, the true judge Jesus, has drawn near to you by becoming a man. And he's come not to condemn, but to save. If you will have him as your savior, believe on him and you will be saved. Well, now it's become obvious who should be in the dock or on trial. It's the Pharisees. So, point number three, the guilty. Point number three, the guilty. Jesus now declares them to be guilty in verses 39 to 41. Let's read that again. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Imagine the man's shock. He's thinking thoughts. Now perhaps his face has betrayed him, but he hasn't even said anything out loud. But Jesus even takes issue with his thoughts. The thoughts, the judgments of his heart that have not been expressed. Jesus addresses the thoughts of this false judge by using their hand-washing ceremony as an illustration of the deeper issue. The kind of cleanliness that they promote is only skin deep. I remember uh, our brother Paul Navarro using a similar illustration in an evening message recently. Not washing the dishes and then putting them back into the cabinet. I cringed then. I definitely cringed reading this. Can you imagine doing the dishes, but being careful only to wash the outside of your dishes, your plates, and your cups after using them and then reusing them again? As someone who has slight OCD tendencies, this idea gives me the heebs. But it's what we do with spiritual cleanliness, isn't it? We clean up the outside and we hope for the best. We put a good face on ourselves and assume that that's going to be good enough. But God isn't requiring the appearance of godliness. He demands perfect righteousness, both inside and out. Jesus calls these Pharisees fools. Verse 40, it's language from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. The fool is someone who does not know God and is wise in his own eyes. These Pharisees are concerned with their outward appearance and yet have no concern for the purity of their own hearts, which are full, Jesus says, of greed and wickedness. Verse 41 is a little confusing. It says, Give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. It appears to me that the self-righteous should give alms or money to the poor out of a pure heart to demonstrate that they are clean on the inside. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describing how these Pharisees would make a big show of their giving of alms. Blowing trumpets, he says. Making it very clear to everyone how much they were giving and how important they were because of it. He says, no, they should be giving alms or money for the poor, benevolence, out of a heart of love, and then they will demonstrate that they are clean. But you see, they are confused regarding the problem. They aren't giving to the poor. They're greedy, and their religion is a performance. They've misunderstood the problem of sin. They've thought that the problem of sin can be dealt with, By scrubbing the outside clean, they neglect the greater problem of sin that is within. Which shows that they not only have a confusion about the problem, how deep their sin is, but also with the process for how to deal with sin. They think that they can deal with their sin by religious rule-keeping. I wonder, brothers and sisters, are you, like me, tempted to put up a front? Are you, like me, tempted to present yourself to be better than you really are so that others would think better of you. This is one of the most dangerous things that you can do. It's dangerous for your soul as a believer. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to let people in on your stuff, to let people in on your baggage, to let people in on your sin struggles. God's people should not be afraid of the light like these Pharisees were. Acting like this can be not only bad for yourself, it can be destructive for the culture of the church as a whole. Pretending we're good is bad for us, but it's bad for others too. Brothers and sisters, we should be those who share freely both our struggles, but also share freely our victories in Christ. Let's not be like the Pharisees here. Concerned with keeping up appearances. Remember, Jesus welcomed sinners who brought their sin to Him and who brought their sin into the light. Run, friends, to Jesus. And then bring others to Jesus too. Now that Jesus has turned the tables on the Pharisees and stated the case of their guilt of self-righteousness, Jesus now judges these criminals. And we see the case moving forward as Jesus, the true judge, the Lord, declares them guilty. These woes are pronouncements of judgment. It's a way of pronouncing judgment. So point number four, the judgment. Point number four, the judgment. This is verses 42 to 44. We'll look at these three woes in order. First, verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe... Mint and rue and every herb and neglect, justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. These Pharisees have missed the main point. They are keeping man-made rules at the expense of God-given laws. They are tithing, that is giving a tenth, of every vegetable and herb that they grow. They are being meticulous about their rule-keeping. And yet they're keeping the wrong rules. They are painstaking in their obedience of things like tithing every little bit of their groceries. And yet they've missed the forest for the trees. In their concern for details of their rule keeping, their hearts are still far away from God. Do you remember the two greatest commandments? First, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. From Deuteronomy chapter 6. That's what Jesus is referring to in verse 42. They've neglected the love of God. And the second greatest commandment is like it, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, from Leviticus 19. Jesus also summarizes this command in verse 42 with that little word, justice. Not only are we called to love God, we are also called to do justice. We are called to treat those around us rightly or justly. Now what this means for us as Christians, as redeemed people, isn't that we give others what they deserve, or we treat them like we are their judges. No, doing justice means loving others because God has loved us in Christ. We love God first, but out of that abundance of love, we then turn and love other people. And as the redeemed and pardoned of God, we treat others with grace, since we are recipients of God's grace. We show mercy to others because we have received mercy. And we love, not to be loved, but because we have been loved by God. My dad told me the story once of a conversation he had on a plane, The man found out that he was a Christian and a pastor, and said to him, Christians are all hypocrites. I don't want anything to do with them. I don't want anything to do with church. Perhaps you've heard someone say this. My dad replied very wisely, Oh, come on. We're all hypocrites, aren't we? We all pretend to be better than we are. We all hold others to standards that we don't keep. And the man was shocked, but eventually agreed and said, No, you're right. I'm a hypocrite too. You see, that's proof that there's a problem. This is not a Pharisee-only issue. This is a human issue, a human problem, one that all of us deal with. And so it shouldn't surprise us that even Christians struggle with hypocrisy. We all do this, and we can even do this in the church. Pastor Jeremy will be preaching next week on Acts chapter 5, the passage on Ananias and Sapphira, how these Christians in the church made their church offering a show of great sacrifice in order to win respect and applause from their fellow church members. And they're judged by God for it. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful and watch ourselves that we are not hypocritical like this. That's Jesus' first pronouncement of judgment. His second woe is here in verse 43. His second pronouncement of judgment. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Jesus exposes the Pharisees' motivation. They do what they do, not for God, but for applause, the applause of men. Jesus says about them in Matthew twenty three, five, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. The Pharisees aren't in this to know God, to be known by God, and to please God. Religiosity is their means for getting notoriety and respect and even position and power. The Apostle Paul wrote that there were similar kinds of people, even in the church. 2 Timothy 3.5, it says that there are people who have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Christians, there's a temptation here for us as well we can slowly, subtly begin to be more concerned by what others think of us than what God thinks of us. We can be driven by the respect of others. Even as a pastor, I can focus more on what people think of my ministry or say about my ministry than focusing on giving glory to God in my work. Jesus warns about this kind of religion in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then, Jesus says, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now I'm going to step on toes, including my own here, by making a couple of comments about social media. Jesus talks about these Pharisees who love their greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in synagogues. For many, our marketplaces are now on the internet, especially in a time of, Social distancing. Instead of greetings in public places, we go for the likes and the hearts and the comments. Friends, let me encourage you to be careful with your social media activity. I'm not here to say that all social media is bad. It can be useful. It can be edifying. But beware that it doesn't turn into a space for hypocrisy, for comparing, or even worse, for a searching for identity make some application here for parents as well. Parents, I wonder, what are you modeling for your children? It can be a temptation for us as parents to be more concerned with how our kids make us appear than in being loving parents to our children. Let me encourage you, friends, to love your children faithfully rather than be being concerned primarily with how they look or how they make you look. I wonder too, parents, are we modeling self-righteousness for our children? Or are we modeling repentance? You know, your children don't need you to pretend that you're perfect. They know that you're not. And as a fellow human being, you can model for them how it is that we relate to God. Not by pretending that we're perfect, but by repenting And even confessing sin when we sin and turning to God for help. My wife and I have talked regularly how easy it is to demand perfect obedience from our children when at the same time we fail daily in our relationship with God. Let me encourage you parents in your parenting to be patient with your children and to give room for grace. There's broader application here too. Are you in a position of authority? Are you a supervisor or a boss? I wonder what kind of reputation you have among your co-workers or even under those that you oversee. Would they say that you say one thing, but that the quality of your words or your work says something else entirely? Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to not give in to hypocrisy at work. And even for us here in the church. Brothers and sisters, Fellow members of FPC, are you quick to assign bad motives to people, or are you even quicker to pray for them? Let me encourage you, even if you think that someone has sinned against you, let me encourage you to move toward people, to have loving conversations, pointing others to Christ, rather than keeping people at arm's length and judging them in your hearts. Do you perhaps, like me, spend too much time and energy reading into what others do and don't do? Or do we treat people differently depending on what they do or what they can offer us or our reputation? Brothers and sisters, this shouldn't mark us. Even in the quiet of our own hearts. Because Jesus hasn't treated us this way. As the new covenant people of God, we need to be those who not only know God's words, but also apply them out of love, and not simply to serve our own ends. Let's pray for God to help us in this. Jesus then brings his third and final pronouncement of judgment in verse 44. Jesus compares the Pharisees with unmarked graves. In the Old Testament law code, dead bodies were unclean, and touching a dead body made a person ceremonially unclean before God. So walking over an unmarked grave would make a person unclean, though they'd be unaware of it. That's what Jesus means in this third charge against the Pharisees. Not only were they unclean themselves, they were causing others to be unclean too. Their system of rule keeping and their focus on external righteousness led others astray too. If you want to know whether you've gone the way of the Pharisees, see if your influence on their lives is for good. Or whether it has a corrupting effect. Jesus says that these teachers have corrupted others and led them away from God. People didn't love God more because of them. No, they were led closer to death instead of eternal life. Teachers are held to a higher standard because they're responsible not only for what they believe themselves, but for what they teach to others and they're judged by God more strictly. James 3:1 says, "Not many of you, brothers, should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness." Now, that doesn't mean that we should use this as an excuse to not be teachers or to stop growing or to refuse to care for other people by speaking truth to them. No, we should be concerned with growing to be more like Jesus so that in our words and in our influence, we can influence others for good. Sometimes, hiding is a form of legalism if it comes from a place of wanting to manage how people view you. And we can pretend to be more spiritual than we are by simply doing nothing. No, brothers and sisters, let's not hide out of a fear of doing something bad Let's come into the light and become more like Jesus so that we can be an influence for good, not only in our own lives or in our own families, but a blessing to others as well. And a quick application here. There's always a concern that in our reaction to something bad, that we can fall into a ditch on the other side of the road. Let me say this clearly. Liberty and license is not the solution for legalism. Getting what I want, however I want, and disregarding God's laws is just as wrong as placing our hope in rule-keeping to save us. While Jesus is the true judge, the Bible's picture of Jesus is that he's gentle and that he's lowly. He, indeed, has come near to us, though he is The judge, he has drawn near to sinful humanity, not because we earned it and not because we deserve it. No, he has drawn near to us because he is kind and because he is good. We all know how a court case ends. We hope that at the end of a court case, justice is served. And we hope that the guilty are punished. But how does this case end? Oh, point number five, the verdict. Point number five, the verdict. We all, when we watch shows or movies about court cases, get excited to see justice served because all of us, deep down, want there to be righteousness and justice served. But the problem with a passage like this and a court scene like this is that all of us are accused and all of us stand guilty in Jesus' court. You know the wonderful thing about the verdict in this court scene? Is that Jesus doesn't finally condemn them and wipe these people off the face of the earth. No, even in this awkward scene, even in making this uh, difficult scene of a courtroom and accusing these people of wrong, what is coming from Jesus here is a heart of love. A heart of love for these sinners. You see, even in these statements of judgment... Even in these statements of woe, there is hope here for you and for me. There was hope here for these Pharisees. Jesus, the one who is the judge, has drawn near. And he has not drawn near to condemn, but to save. Dane Ortland, in his wonderful new book, Gentle and Lowly, describes what Jesus is like. Jesus is, he writes, meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, or easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible for all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness. No one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites. No hoops to jump through. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to Him. It is all He needs. Indeed, it is the only thing He works with. This is just what the Pharisees would not do. They would not admit their hypocrisy, their sin, and their need for Jesus. And this is the point that you and I need to remember. That there is hope for sinners like us. There is hope for hypocrites like us. Not in pretending that we are better than we are. Not in sweeping our sin under the rug. No, in running to Jesus. And being drawn into His open arms as we repent of our sins and trust in Him. And what will happen then when we are entered into the family of God through Christ is that we no longer need to attempt to justify ourselves with self-righteousness or rule-keeping. No, we can now become like Jesus in the way that we treat one another and in the kind of culture that we build as God's people in the church. The saved are justified by Christ, and then they are to imitate our Savior by showing mercy and building a culture of faithfulness, honesty, vulnerability, and love. Brothers and sisters, I want to thank you all for encouraging me and genuinely caring for me and my family these past several years. Your concern for me and my holiness, bearing burdens with me, has pointed me to my Savior time and again. I'm reminded through your love that Jesus came to lift my burdens, not add on me more burdens. That's what the Pharisees did. They heaped more burdens. Christians are those who lighten one another's burdens as we bear with each other in love and point one another to Christ. And my encouragement to you is this. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Make the culture of this church one of honesty and vulnerability, of mercy and love. And as we do this, we will help each other see the freedom and sweetness of a life centered around Christ rather than the burden of a life centered around self. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that our Savior Jesus, though he is the judge of all the earth, is gentle and lowly. That he is tender and open and welcoming and accommodating and understanding and willing to those who come to him and ask him to take our yoke to those who cry to him for help. We pray, Lord, that we would be those who know Christ and then who become like him. O Lord, do this in our midst for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.